Well, we've all had those moments, right? Those times when we did something, said something, acted out of character, and then it immediately hits us. We're guilty, we sinned, and we have that conversation with ourselves. Why in the world did I just do that? Why did I just say that? How could I have been so stupid? I wish I could go back in time and reverse what just happened or take my words back. And this is not self-improvement here. I'm talking about those moments where we gave in to sin, where we let our guard down and we messed up. Maybe it's a a nagging sin that we've been battling on and off for decades, and we know far too well those moments where we're duped by that sin and reality sets in and we have to deal with the guilt and the consequences. And again, we ask ourselves, how could I have done that again? Is there any hope? And what is that hope? How can we fight smarter, more biblically? And can we have victory more than defeat? The Holy Spirit hopefully will teach us all about that today from the book of Romans. Last week, we were in Romans chapter 7, the first part. We said that being a Christian means that having Jesus as our master. And when Jesus is our master, our purpose then is changed through fruitfulness and sanctification for his glory. The Holy Spirit empowers our lives when Jesus is our master. We love God's law when Jesus is our master. But at that same time, we are wise as to how sin works. And Paul's going to continue that this week. In his letter to the church at Rome, the Apostle Paul keeps coming back to the topic of God's law especially as it contrasts with the gospel of God's grace. And this week, Paul's going to continue to talk about sin and the law, but this week he will frame it as the fight goes on, the one that we know so well within each of us. And so continuing where we left off last week, responding to the objection, if the law arouses sin, is the law sin? By no means. God's law is holy, righteous, and good. And even though it stirs up those sinful desires in us, the law itself is not sinful. It cannot be. The law is not our problem. Sin is our problem. And let's look at verse 13. Paul continues, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So let's pause and unpack that. Paul asks yet another rhetorical question. He's done it, I think this is his fourth time now, based on the anticipated objection from verse 7. So if the law is good, Paul, does this good thing then bring death? Once again, he answers, by no means. Of course not. If you're rolling King James, God forbid, it says. He clarifies again that it was sin which produced death in him, not the law. This is what sin does. Sin always brings death. It brings shame first, then probably additional complicating things that happen as a result of that, and then finally, if you don't repent, death. Well, the first reason that we want to look at why the law does this is because through the law, we said last week, comes knowledge of sin. God's law is the standard. So very first up front, that's how we know what sin is. God's law literally defines sin. God's law tells us what sin is. 
and the consequences of sin. But the second reason why sin brings death through the law is what Paul goes into in the back half of that verse I just read in verse 13. In order that, so that, in other words, purpose clause, here it comes, that sin might be shown to be sin. In other words, the commandment, a.k.a. God's law, reveals sin to be just that, sin. It shines the spotlight on sin. It shows what it is in its ugliness, in its awfulness. The NET translation says this, so that sin would become utterly sinful. And so I'll put our first point this way. God's law causes sin to be exposed for what it truly is. God's law causes sin to be exposed for what it truly is. God's law not only defines sin, but it shines the light so that we can see what sin is really like and what really comes of sin, namely death. The law of God not only defines sin, but exposes the ugliness of it. It causes sin to be seen for what it truly is. It it takes the blankets off. It, It opens the curtain. It shows what really is going on. We've all had times when we've been duped by sin, hoodwinked, perhaps even bamboozled, tricked, deceived. We realize the truth of that situation far too late because we only realized it because we just walked right into sin. Deception is how sin works. And of course, our enemy, Satan, is standing right behind sin. Sin is his major tool his major lure that he uses in order for us to try and uh, get us to defy the law of God. He is hiding the true ugliness of sin, and God's law exposes the ugliness of sin. I love to fish, and I always think when I'm catching one, which depending on where I am isn't all that often or might be that often, I always think, I just tricked you fish. That wasn't an actual worm, you idiot. That was a Senko. That wasn't a real frog skipping across that lily pad. That was a plastic frog I bought at Walmart. And it's got hooks in it. And now I just caught you. That's how sin works. Sin hides the hook. And when we take the bait, we immediately find the hook. We immediately find that it hurts. In those times, if we only had listened to the law of God before we actually did that, we would spare ourselves that pain of that hook. The law of God's telling us the truth. There is a hook in there. Sin is lying. It's trying to trick you. Sin can't deliver on its promises, and the law of God tries to expose that to us before we have to figure it out ourselves. I've quoted it many times already, but it's too fitting not to quote again. The book of James talks about this exact thing in James 1 and verse 14. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured. There's our actual fishing term. When he's lured away and enticed by his own desire." Then desire, when it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That's the way it works. Stop and think, before taking the bait of sin, compare it to God's law. You might just spare yourself that moment where you actually get the hook. Sinful desire and temptation gives birth to sin in action, and it always ends in death. And God's law is trying to spare us that by telling us the truth about sin, if we only will listen. And where do we see this sin being exposed for what it truly is? I'll give us three categories. Cosmic sin, cultural sin, and personal sin. First, cosmic sin. I don't mean sins committed by aliens that happen to be in the news all the time, whether or not they exist. I don't mean those kind of sins, but sin with the capital S, 
Sin that is in the world that affects every single human being because we're in a world cursed by sin cosmically. Thank you, Adam and Eve. We all see the effects of cosmic sin in natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, droughts. We also see the effect of cosmic sin in our bodies. They don't last forever. They break down. They get sick. We deal with aging and eventually death. So we see it certainly in cosmic sin at large. We also see it in cultural sin, the sin that is running amok in society, even though, church, remember that it is being restrained by the grace of God. Were God to remove his restraining hand of grace on this earth, it would implode within minutes. We have to remember that because we can get, we can watch the news and get all doom and gloom and where are we going with this world and all of that and, and I understand that, but God is actively restraining sin. And how do we know that? Because we're still here. The world is still spinning. We still have air to breathe. The sun is coming up every day, but we see it in cultural sin. We see violent crime and drug, drug addiction epidemics in the major cities. We see corruption at virtually, virtually every level of the government. We see toxic perversion in the woke agenda and the greedy corporations trying to capitalize on it by exploiting it. So we see it in cultural sin. But lastly, of course, and you might have thought of this first, that's why I put it last, is personal sin. Perhaps we go to this first. We all individually have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where we see sin being exposed for what it truly is. We see it cosmically. We know that the world is broken. We see it culturally. We know that our culture is buying the lie of sin. And sure enough, we see it personally. Because each one of us personally has sinned. Just like James said, said we're all lured away and enticed by our own sins. And we know it. And when we do... I don't know if you're like me, but we see that sin exposed for the ugliness that it is. We shake our heads in disbelief and we say to ourselves again, how did I just fall for that again? And that's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 14 of Romans 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me." trivia. I can remember about 20 years ago when I was first coming back to the Lord, and Brother John, you did a great job seeing your way through that passage, but I remember 20 years ago at a Bible study, and Pastor Matha said, can you read this? And I read it, and I was like, first of all, I couldn't even get through it, because do not do what I want, and do who does what and where, and I'm, I just messed up the whole thing, because it's so confusing. But I also remember, I knew exactly what this passage was talking about. It just cut through me like a knife. I think it, it does for all of us, doesn't it? We all have been here. We all get this. Verse 14, Paul sets the foundation. The law itself is spiritual, probably referring to the spirit giving of the law, right? The spiritual aspect, the purity of the law, the way that it applies to our hearts and convicts us. But we are not spiritual. We are natural. 
We are sold as slaves to sin. Naturally, we are sold as a slave to sin. Naturally, you are of the flesh or sin. And so disclosure, if you know anything about this passage, if you've ever looked at this passage, you know that commentators have fought about this passage for centuries. Who is this I that Paul is talking about? Again, they they write pages and pages and pages upon it. Is Paul pre-Christian Paul? Is this representing Israel in some strange way? Is this post-Christian Paul? Who is it? Church fathers did a complete flip on it. For a little while, they thought it was pre-Christian Paul. Then Augustine came along and said, nah, it's not. And then they all followed Augustine, which I agree with. But I also think that in verse 13 and 14, he is talking about pre-Christian Paul. He is talking about him before. He's talking about him sold as a slave to sin. That's what it was like before Christ. But then certainly verses 15 through 20 is talking about Christian Paul. And I think we can all relate to that because that's us, church. If you're a Christian, you feel this battle with sin in your soul. We know better. (coughs) Excuse me. We know what sin is. And when we fall for the lie of sin, we shake our heads like Paul just did and said, I don't get it. Why did I do that? As a Christian, that's not what I want to be doing. And yet there I go again, just the opposite of what I'm supposed to be doing. Sometimes Paul says we get it right. And then we're like, yeah, that was smart. I actually followed what God told me to do. I obeyed the law and it worked out well. And I avoided the trap of sin. And in those moments, I can agree the law is good. But in those other moments, we realize the conviction that the law brings. Look at how Paul words this. It's a battle of what we want in our flesh going against the Spirit. Look at verse 16 again. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So we have this desire language coming in here. If I do what I do, if I do what I do not want, right? If I, if I get through this without major like verbal mess up here, we'll be okay. Pray for me. Um, we realize after we sin, that's what he means. I didn't want to do that. I'm a Christian now. That's not what I should be doing. That's not what I wanted to do. So when we sin, he refers to that as doing what we do not want. He realizes that. Sometimes Paul says we get it right. And sometimes we remember the law is good. So why does it work this way? In verse 17, he says this. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul says, because you know what? Why I do that? Guess what? It's remaining sin in me. Just like the law itself isn't sinful, right? Sin sees the law and then is awakened by by the law and we sin. Our sinful actions don't come from thin air. They're attached to remaining sin in our hearts, even as Christians. We have remaining sin in our hearts. We all have this part of us as Christians, that sin remaining in us. That's what he says in verse 18. For I knew nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. That part of me that's still sinful is nothing good. But there's another part, he says, the spirit living in us that gives us the desire to do God's law. Like, I know what I want to do, but I, sometimes I can't do it. Sometimes I don't have the desire to do it. If we say it another way, Sometimes sin wins. Sometimes I give in to sin. Sometimes I'm weak. In verse 19, Paul has this head-shaking moment. I don't do the good that I want, but I end up doing the evil that I don't want. And I keep doing it. 
In verse 20, he repeats the reason for this that he said in verse 16. When I said, or when I sin rather, it's the remaining sin that has deceived me and I fell for it. Even as Christians, there is remaining sin dwelling in us that capitalizes on that temptation to sin. And sometimes it wins. Maybe I can summarize it this way and try to answer Paul's question of why do we sometimes sin even though in God's law we know what sin is? Well, sometimes we give in to the lie of remaining sin. Sometimes we do give in to the lie of remaining sin. We've all had those moments. We all can relate to this on a deeply personal level. We all feel this level of frustration with our remaining sin. Why did I just lose it with my kids again? Why can't I seem to drive without succumbing to road rage for the idiot in front of me who can't find his accelerator? Why do I have to lie to shade the truth to make myself look better when I really didn't need to do that? Why did I eat so much? Why did I drink so much? Why do I continue to sleep with my boyfriend or girlfriend? Why can't I stop looking at porn? Answer, if you're a Christian, you're giving into remaining sin. And that first part's really important. If you're a Christian, you're giving in to remaining sin. Paul talks about this in the book of Galatians, in chapter 5. He talks about this struggle, and he, and he captures it perfectly. Galatians 5 and verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh, right, sinful desires, are against the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for those who are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Thanks, Paul. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Right, so we see we have this desire to do what God wants us to do. If we're Christians, we're renewed. We have that desire inside of us. We want to do it. But sometimes, right, the flesh prevents us, sin remaining in us prevents us from doing that. In an attempt to illustrate this, I've called upon every single artistic ability within myself and the fine folks at canva.com, and here's what I came up with. And so this is us. This is pre-Christian. Oh, yeah. All right. Work with me here. All we have is sin. That's all we know is sin. We just have a sinful nature. We don't have the Holy Spirit within us. And so again... If you're not a Christian and you keep falling into the same sin again, it's not a battle of the spirit versus the flesh because you don't have the spirit. You're just giving into sin. You need a new nature when you come to Christ. That's the second part. When you're a Christian, we have this battle of remaining sin versus the spirit, right? That's that conflict that happens. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. Those things don't get along. The spirit is at war with the flesh within us. The spirit is at war with our remaining sin. That's that conflict that we all know so well. I'll give you some good news. Here's the last part of the equation. When we're in eternity, when we're glorified, bye-bye sin. All we have is the spirit. Then we will rest from our battle with sin. I see a lot of thumbs up and relieved faces. That's, that's what we're longing for. But for now... We want to win as many of those battles as we possibly can with sin. Remaining sin is within us. It wages war against us. So why do we give in to remaining sin? Don't forget, Paul uses the language of desire here. He uses want. You want to. So bottom line answer, guys, why do we give in to sin? Because we want to. Because we love it. 
Every time we give in to that sin, that's what we think we need. That's what we think we're justified in having at that moment. Why do we sin so much? Because we love our sin. We give it power, yet we're called to kill it and mortify it. Paul tells us that when we listen to the Spirit, we agree God's law is good. But when we listen to remaining sin, we give it power and it turns into sinful actions and then we immediately know the truth. So what can we do? I'm going to give you four strategies from the 1600s. I know you guys love it when I do that. Puritan Thomas Brooks, in his powerful book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he gives us, he gives us more than that because he's a Puritan. He gave us like 7,000 of them. I'll give you four. Here's the first one. First, keep at the greatest distance from sin and from playing with the golden bait that Satan holds forth to catch you. In other words, you know you have a propensity to sin in that area. Stay far away from that area. Don't go too close to the edge. Don't mess with sin. Don't play with it. Don't get too close to it. Second, consider that that sin is bittersweet. In other words, it might seem like something that would be good, but after you've acted, you know what's going to happen because it works the same way every time. You're going to feel like Paul did. Why didn't I do that? Talk to yourself. Remind yourself that this is bittersweet. It's not just sweet. There's bitterness afterwards. Third, consider that sin will usher in the greatest and saddest losses that can be upon our souls. Sin brings sadness. Sin brings misery. And in the end game, of course, sin brings death. Guys, standing behind sin is Satan. And First Peter tells us that Satan is like a roaring lion who prowls around looking for someone to have a bad day. No, he's looking for someone to devour. Satan doesn't want you in a bad mood. Satan wants you dead. Satan wants you rejecting Christ. Satan wants your marriage destroyed. Satan wants your kids to not see a good example of battling sin. Satan wants all of that. So be reminded, consider that sin will usher in the greatest and saddest losses that can be upon our souls. And fourth, consider that sin is of a very deceitful and bewitching nature. Be wise to this. Sin is trying to trick you. It's like the fishing lure. That's what it's designed to do. It's designed to look good. It's designed to get you to fall for it. Know that's how it works. And don't fall for it. This is how remaining sin works. Its tool is deception. Be wise. And I'll add one more from another famous Puritan and John Owen in his book, uh, Mortification of Sin. This is critical. Don't try it without the Holy Spirit. Don't even try to fight sin without the Holy Spirit. So, of course, you need to be a Christian first in order to fight sin. But he, John Owen puts it this way. It is the Spirit alone that can mortify sin. He has promised to do it. All other means without him are empty and vain. How shall he then mortify sin that he not has the spirit? A man may easier see without eyes, speak without a tongue, and truly mortify one sin without the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying don't make strategies of how to be wise against this sin, but don't you dare rely on just those strategies, right? Don't just come up with the top four reasons of how I'm not going to drink so much in again. You need the Holy Spirit to guide that. Make the reasons. Let other people in and do it. 
but you need the Holy Spirit to drive that or you will fail. Don't even try it without the Holy Spirit, Owen reminds us. Again, before Christ, we literally don't have the Holy Spirit. But now, our main weapon against the temptation to sin is the Holy Spirit. That's the good news, church. We have the Holy Spirit. You're a Christian? Congratulations. You have the Holy Spirit. And you can actually have victory over sin. So what happens when we do sin? When we buy the lie of remaining sin? And that's where Paul goes next. Look at verse 21 of Romans 7. So I find this law, or this to be a law, when I want to do right. Evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law with my mind, law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Paul tries to summarize all this, and he says in verse 21, he sees a law at work here, a principle. He says he knows how things work. He says, I got it now. I figured it out. When I want to do good, evil's going to be right there. Isn't that just such an encouraging thought? When we want to actually obey God, guess what? Expect that evil is going to be right there with you trying to stop you from obeying God. It reminds me of Genesis 4 after, or before, rather, Cain and Abel, where God says, be careful. Sin is crouching at the door. Beware, right? We have to remember that. Of course, he didn't listen to God's advice. When we want to do good, evil is right there with me. I wanted to have a salad, but then I drove by McDonald's. I couldn't help it. When he wants to follow God's law, sin is right there trying to get him not to, showing him the golden bait of sin remaining in me. There is a part of him, his inner being, that has been made through Christ, made new rather through Christ, that delights in God's law, which is why I totally think he's obviously talking about a Christian here. Non-Christians wouldn't delight in God's law. He says, I delight in God's law. There's a part of me that loves God's law, but then there's this other part of me that wants to rage against God's law which is the remaining sin in me. It's kind of like, picture this like an out-of-body experience where Paul is like looking down on himself, like, what are you doing? Don't give in to that sin, right? We can intellectually appreciate the law of God, even delight in it, and then somehow we still fall into sin because it's a war. And again, the spirit, and when we give in to sin, sin versus the spirit, rather, we give in to sin, we are voluntarily submitting again to the captivity of sin. He has this moment then in verse 24 where he just, you can feel the exasperation. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We don't use the word wretched very often anymore. We can understand what it means. It means miserable. It means pitiful. It means lowly. Basically exactly how we feel when we give in to sin and realize we've been duped. You can feel that desperation that Paul has, that agonizing moment where he is faced with the ugly consequences of our sin. Church, you're fighting sin. You've got to get to a verse 24 moment. You have to. You have to hate that sin that was in, that's within you. You have to fall on your face before God and say, I can't do this 
I need you to do this because I can't do this. In me, I'm wretched. There's this part of me that's wretched, God. I want to defeat this sin. Can we just also stop and be encouraged here? This is the Apostle Paul, okay? He wrote most of the New Testament, and he's calling himself a wretch. There's hope for us, church. He's calling himself a wretch because he fights sin, just like we need to fight sin. Look at the last two verses again, because it's so important where he brings himself to next. 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? It's a question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what he says. He brings him back to that. He says, there's only one person who can rescue me from the body of death. The one who defeated death on my behalf. Jesus Christ our Lord. Who can save me? Only Jesus. Jesus is the only answer to the war with sin. And so my third point, remember Christ has won the victory even when we may suffer a defeat. Remember that Christ has won the victory even when we may suffer. Despite a temporary defeat from sin, church, this is a cry of victory from a redeemed sinner. Sin may have won that battle. Fine. You won that battle. I sinned. Guess what? Christ still won the war. And guess what, sin? I'm going to get back up. Piper calls this fighting like a justified sinner, which I absolutely love. Remember your identity. Sin may have knocked you down, but get back up again. Because Christ has won the war. I lost this fight, but I'm not giving up. Church, we've got to resist the temptation to have a defeatist attitude with our sin. We've got to resist the temptation to be like, oh, well, I guess I'll just struggle with this until I die. Now, I'm not going to say you're not. You might. But you've got to fight that spirit-empowered fight the whole way. And the Lord can give you victory. Some sins won't be defeated that easily. Some sins do take a long time. And isn't it great that our Lord uses these sins to sanctify us and grow us? Thank you so much, Jesus, right? The ones that we continue to struggle with, right? Part of being 53 now, right, is that I'm, I'm probably not going to sin in new and exciting ways. I, I always could. But I know, I know my propensities. I know where they are. I know the danger zones. Do I still walk into them? Yeah, sometimes I do. But the Lord uses those things to grow and to sanctify us. We have to resist that, that temptation to be like, eh, I'm just going to sin like this forever. There's no hope. No, there is hope. Christ has defeated sin. Christ went before us. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. There is hope. Don't throw away your confidence in what Christ has accomplished through his sacrifice on the cross and his glorious resurrection. We have to stand and we have to fight, church. If you lost one battle, get back up again and fight harder by the power of the Holy Spirit and rejoice in the fact that Jesus has won the victory. It reminds us of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But he says it again, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can have victory over sin. And even though we might suffer a sting Sin might sting us every once in a while, but we need to keep fighting. 
We can't stay down. We've always got to get back up. Why? Christ has bled and died and been resurrected for our victory in sin. Done it. He's ensured it. And we must claim that victory through faith and fight on. We have to know the way remaining sin works within us and how our enemy will seek to gain the advantage rather than try. And of course, he wants to destroy our faith. And ultimately, he wants to destroy us. Paul tells us at the end of verse 25, he says, So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Don't, don't take that to mean that he's okay with sin in his life. He's just saying, this is my summary here. I know this is the way it's going to work. I know that intellectually I appreciate the law of God. I know that when everything's cool and I have my coffee in the morning and I read my, quiet, I read my Bible during my quiet time, I can agree, yeah, I should not speak harshly to my kids or to my wife or whatever. I should not have road rage. I should not overeat. I should not do all those things. And we agree, and yes, but then what happens at noon? We want to do those things somehow. Somehow sin rises up in us and we give in to it. He says, that's the way it's going to work, and I have to be ready for it, not to just be okay with it. That's where it all comes back to God's law. If we're in Christ, we're no longer under the condemnation of God's law, but now we are to live in the new way of the Holy Spirit residing in us. And so here's the big idea. God's law, this is how it works. God's law shows us the reality of sin so we can find our refuge in Christ. God's law shows us the reality of sin so that we can find our refuge in Christ. And we've been saying all along in our study in Romans, we can't throw away God's law. We still need God's law, Christians. But God's law, God's law alone can't save us. And maybe this passage will help us see that, right? What's the hope? Just white knuckle it and try and obey God's law? Paul says that doesn't work because <laughs> I get duped by sin all the time. It's, it's more clearly illustrated here than maybe any other place in Romans. We will get knocked down by sin and we will shake our heads in wonder and we will say, I don't understand what I do. But... If we rely on the work of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can have victory. God's law still is a vital part of that victory because God's law exposes sin for what it really is. We just need to pay attention to that, church. Yet we must remember, be wise as to how sin works. Sometimes we can do it, or we can and we do give in to the lie of remaining sin, but knowing in advance that it's a lie and it's trying to deceive us will help us in the battle. And when we stumble, sin wins a battle here and there. We all struggle with the guilt in the ways that we have failed. And in those moments, church, we need to go right back to verse 24. And we need to say, yeah, wretched man that I am. There's a part of me that is still here and will be with me until the day that I die that wants to sin. And that part is wretched. But don't you dare stop there. Get to verse 25 where he says, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. He has saved me from this body of death. He is my savior. He is my refuge. And although God's law shows us the reality of sin, it also shows me the refuge that is in Jesus Christ. Church, this is just about as practical as a passage as we are ever going to have, is it not? We all struggle with this. Let us fight on. Let us remember God's law showing us the reality of sin so that we can find that refuge in Christ.
Lord, we thank you for your goodness. These passages are, are so, uh, they're so cutting to our souls. Like you tell us, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts through motives and thoughts and intentions to get to the heart of things. And I pray that the Holy Spirit does that this morning. I pray that those, Lord, that, that maybe are, not, are here that do not have a relationship with Christ that don't have the spirit in their lives in order to fight sin, that you would open their eyes to the need for salvation and that you would grant them the gift of repentance and faith today and that you would save them. But Lord, for us as the church, for us as disciples of Jesus Christ who are seeking to be matured in the faith, Lord, strengthen us to fight against sin. Remind us of your law that shows us the truth about sin. Lord, remind us of the Holy Spirit that we have within us and all the ways that we can be wise as to how sin works. And Father, may we be ultimately reminded of what Jesus has done. Though we, we may lose a fight with sin, that you have won the war through the sacrifice on the cross. Give us encouragement. Glorify yourselves through it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.